Well, welcome to the inauguration. This is the very first episode of the Novice to Office podcast. I am your host, Trey Bam. My last name in print looks like it's pronounced anyway, other than how I just said it. But that is my name, Bam. You heard it correct. I am thrilled to be one of the guides for Market Scales uh, channel of information and experts. It is my understanding this podcast is something kind of new for Market Scale in that uh, I will serve as a guide for politics and government. So off we go. Not only has the gang here been very encouraging, but they have an energy that has been wonderful. Why am I a politics and government guide? Well, I have a lifetime of experience in such. I have no formal training in the field. Everything I've learned has been on the street, so to speak. I have a little bachelor's degree in history, but that's it. Uh, but I have worked at pretty much every level of government and in campaigns for said levels. And I mean, pretty much every level. There's only two, only two elected elect offices I've never had a direct role in. That's president of the United States and uh, dog catcher. I'm too weird to fit in with those who decide who works at the White House, and I'm not much of an animal lover uh, to do the latter job. But I've worked in the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, a state agency, uh, the Texas Senate, a defense contractor, uh, and I've worked as a consultant in various political roles for federal, state, county, city, school board, and political party offices. Uh, I'm kind of surprised some people still like me to hang around uh, with all this government smell on me, but, you know, everyone needs friends. Uh, I guess my earliest memory of anything to do with the public sector was watching Jimmy Carter, uh, I guess it was 1979, address the energy crisis. Uh, I was seven. I, of course, don't remember a thing about what was actually said, only that my grandparents were... Uh, made some dismissive remarks after the speech. We were all at their house in Houston, and their attitude was, well, whatever, everyone in this town is making a killing off of the high fuel prices. Uh, the first purely political experience I had was when my dad, who's a physician, decided to run for an unexpired term on our small city, uh, small county hospital board. I was around nine years old, I think, I thought putting out those flimsy neon orange signs with B-A-H-M on them was the coolest thing. As my dad was building them all, I started putting them out every 10 feet along the curb of our house. Uh, he later came out and said, no, 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 no. We've got to put these out here and over there. There's not enough people here uh, in our neighborhood to vote. Uh, I replied, well, that's okay. We'll get our cousins to vote. I guess that's a somewhat viable strategy as long as your extended family likes you. Uh, the cousins I was referring to here uh, happened to be my dad's in-laws. So, you know, sometimes it's tricky. <laughs> uh, but probably the moment I became hooked on politics or got the bug uh, and its unloved stepsister, government, was when I was 16. I had just barely passed my driver's license test in the summer of 88. 
pretty much everyone in my family will attest that I just barely passed my driver's license test uh, if they've ridden with me. Anyway, the test was administered by the crustiest state trooper I have that has ever ridden in off the prairie. He rode with me during my test in my mother's car, and it was like being driven along to the gallows. When we got back to the office, he draws, well, believe it or not, you passed. Uh, his form read 72. I said, thank you, and I was elated at how government worked. A couple months later, one of those cousins I mentioned earlier entered our pastor's study one Wednesday evening uh, within a special announcement. My cousin had been voluntold to be our interim youth minister, and he said that this evening we wouldn't be opening the scriptures, but instead we would all listen in on a conference call. Uh, my cousin had volunteered to be the county liaison for the George H.W. Bush campaign, uh, the dad. We gathered around the sacred pastor's desk with the phone as my cousin dialed the number. Upon answering, the person running the call was none other than an energetic George W. Bush as he was running his father's uh, Texas campaign. Back then, Texas was still a swing state, so there was a sense of combat on the call. Uh, w, anyway, went down the list to each county. I guess it was all 254, and he acknowledged each volunteer by name, including my cousin. Uh, this simple interaction just hooked me instantly, and I don't really know why. It just did. And, and for the rest of the fall, I was the signed delivery guy for the candidates we supported. I could do this because I had access to the family suburban and because the state of Texas had given me two points on my driver's license test. It was a watershed moment for me. Uh, I understood the symbiotic relationship of government, regulations, and campaigning. And I would never be the same. If you stick with me for this podcast, not only will you be incredibly moved and inspired by my amazing stories, but you too will understand this symbiotic relationship and hopefully you'll get hooked too. Uh, maybe you had the tragic misfortune of having a less than average teacher for civics in high school. Uh, maybe you had coaches history. I am sad for you, but your salvation has come. In our podcast, we will talk about the true basics of politics of government, uh, the nuts and bolts, in a concise and entertaining way. In fact, it wouldn't be a politics po podcast if I didn't make a promise. I promise you this will be a discussion of government that is opinion-free. That is right. That is what I said. Now, I've told on myself a little bit from my stories. You probably have a good idea of where I come from politically. But that will not be the content of the show. We're not going to get wrapped up in the politics of the day's events or ideas. We will surely reference current events, but only insofar as we are explaining government mechanics. We will, of course, have to reference political ideology here and there because of symbiosis. But this will not be a show where a given ideology is defended at all costs, let alone promoted. 
Uh, I may from time to time have guests with different political views, but this isn't going to be crossfire or the view. Uh, far from it. To the extent I have any real virtues, I think everyone who knows me in politics will affirm for you that I am someone who is fair. Tough, sure, especially when someone is paying me to be so, but I treat everyone equally and according to the rules. That will also, uh, that approach will also govern the content of this podcast, I promise. There. Now that we've gotten the bureaucratic uh, requirements out of the way, let's actually dine on our plate of steaks and taters. Symbiosis is the entree. If I asked you what type of government do we have in the United States, what would be your answer? We're a democracy? Maybe. Okay. So we have a national government where if we need to make a rule for something or go to war or make any kind of decision that should apply to everyone, all 332 and change million Americans get together and vote and majority rules. Is that what you mean? Because that is the definition of the word democracy. That's democracy in its purest form. Okay, so we're not a democracy. So we're a republic. Yes, that is it. A republic, okay? If by republic you mean a group of elders, some elected by vote, some not, who decide everything for us, well, that's not quite it. That is what they had in ancient Rome. It is sort of what they had in England off and on. Uh, the Netherlands about 300, 350 years ago is probably history's best example of a republic. Um, today, maybe Switzerland comes closest. In the United States, however, we are not a republic in the purest form. We are what's called a federal republic in that each of the states sends various uh, representatives to a multi-state gathering that is known as the U.S. government. But we are also composed of 50 micro-republics that also do the representative thing. So this doesn't quite fit either the the United States either. Are we an oligarchy? What is an oligarchy? Well, this is traditionally a small governing glob of individuals acting in the name of a uh, national government who just kind of get together and decide everything, uh, usually delegating their pronouncements to bureaucracies or other institutions, uh, some of which may have democratic features. In our times, uh, various personalities, sentiments, and forces want you to believe that America is an oligarchy, that basically Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Colonel Sanders, Michael Jordan, and Oprah are really the ones in charge, all more or less through the uh, vast wealth that they allegedly control. Well, that's just not the case, as we'll discuss at length on this podcast. Uh, this is what they have in Russia, an oligarchy, though it would never be in print. Uh, one of the core dynamics in Russia is that guys like Putin, while powerful and autocratic, must deal with a political reality that is based on an oligarchy of other individuals. So what kind of government exactly do we have, Trey? We have what is called a liberal democracy. Now, when you hear those words together, 
you might detect a charge. You might be thinking, well, that doesn't surprise me. We're so far down the woke toilet, there's not enough paper in the world to get us out. That may be what liberal democracy means to you. Or you may think, what? No way. America isn't liberal. The corporations own everything. Well, our first episode will also demonstrate the nature of what we will be doing when it comes to politics and government here on the Novice to Office podcast. Demystification. We're going to strip away all the connotations of so many of these terms and make them more understandable. So, what is a liberal democracy and why does it even matter? The term liberal democracy is a technical one. That said, there is not a concise definition. There is instead a definition based on attributes. As an example, if you took a Mercedes and simply painted the word Cadillac on it, does that make it a GM luxury vehicle? No, of course not. But if you were to otherwise describe a Cadillac in precise terms, you'd end up describing the Mercedes all over again. It's an expensive petroleum-powered vehicle on four wheels with luxurious materials inside where you sit. So, what really makes a Cadillac? We can say that a Cadillac is a Cadillac due to several attributes, okay? It is manufactured by an American company, for one. It has a distinct body style, even if you can't really describe that body style. It does not have metric measurements, etc. The same can be said about the attributes that in turn define a liberal democracy. And they are as follows. One, a liberal democracy is a democracy ruled by law. Unlike a pure democracy, which we talked about earlier, in a liberal democracy, the uh, people who make the decisions can't do so if it goes against laws already made. Uh, those pre-existing laws have to be changed first. Uh, attribute number two, a liberal democracy separates power so that no one individual or group or group of individuals uh, can change those laws at will. America has the features of a republic for the very reason that a full-on democracy might harm those it seeks to help. Uh, by having representative government, decisions can be made and then uh, accountability can be applied as necessary. For the same reason, attribute number three, a liberal democracy has an independent judiciary to interpret those same laws or rules. This also serves as a check and balance on other powers. Now, these three attributes didn't just come into being by George Washington's magic sword. <laughs> In fact, on the face of it, these attributes may seem too abstract uh, to be any good or any practical value. So to explain this, we must discuss some history, which is my favorite thing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of a guy named John Locke. Not this guy. This guy. Now, this guy needs to get out in the sunshine, I think, maybe help himself to the donuts. You know, it's funny for someone so influential on American government, uh, John Locke has never been depicted in movies or TV, to my knowledge. Uh, I don't know who would play him. Maybe McConaughey at his Dallas Buyers Club. Wait, 
the guy was thin. John Clock was John Locke was not only critical to America's liberal democracy and how it was formed, but he was also arguably the most influential non-American on America. Uh, he was English. He died about 70 years before the Declaration of Independence was signed. But he's the only one who, through writings and through philosophy, no real political activity per se, through his writings, he came up with the idea of a nation that could be created purely on paper. That is, a la the U.S. and its constitution. Okay, he was the guy who came up with the original terms and conditions. Uh, he was born in Somerset, England in 1632. That's out to the West. Uh, Locke's life really is the perfect capsule of the development of liberal democracy and how it would play out in America. Uh, when he was 10, England had its civil war between the royalists who were loyal to the king and uh, the parliamentarians who were both noblemen and uh, some regular folks who had obtained republic-style political power after a century of the Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation, and the Age of Discovery. Locke's dad was a cavalry captain on the parliamentarian side. Uh, the English Civil War is a wild but lengthy story, but to summarize, Locke came up on the side that opposed the monarchy and supported self-rule and freedom, freedom as they understood it, Thus, he was a liberal. Uh, liberal at that time meant pretty much anything that wasn't the crown, that wasn't a, a powerful crown. It doesn't mean what it means today in terms of economic and social justice. Back then, liberal meant pretty much not the crown, basically. Uh, eventually, the parliamentarians won the English Civil War and the king was captured. Uh, then they didn't have a king for 10 years. Uh, right in the middle of this 10 years, the guy they captured, uh, the parliamentarians, they executed him. And his name, by the way, was Charles I. So <laughs> it's funny we're talking about this now. Over time, the character names tend to stay the same. Uh, but Locke obtained some patronage through his father's army service. And so he had the chance to go to London for an education. Uh, he was 15 and in school only a short distance away from when Charles I was beheaded in London, although apparently he wasn't allowed to see it. Uh, but, he, I mean, he definitely would have heard about it, and it was the talk of the town. And when Charles's son, Charles II, restored the throne in 1652, Locke had experienced, and, and he had experienced all this instability and all this violence during some critical formative years as a teenager. Uh, he received a first edu first rate education in London, and he eventually went to Oxford. Again, through patronage and his skill as a writer, Locke got employed by various English officials to do various government projects. Uh, this income and the connections allowed him to write and publish his letters and other documents, uh, all dealing with political philosophy and a new way of thinking back then called natural rights. Uh, his father's politics clearly influenced him in this, though, and in his writings, Locke carefully laid out the problems with the monarchy, uh, namely its claim to have been given a divine right by God to govern. Now, I won't get all into the history of the divine right of kings and all that, um, but it had been around in Christian Europe at this time 
for maybe about seven, eight hundred years. Uh, but as it sounds, basically, Christian kings believed they were part of a lineage of special leaders empowered by God, going all the way back to Adam uh, at the time of creation to rule. But Locke also followed Christian teachings too, something he felt they were needed for society. And so he wasn't going to throw the baby Jesus out with the bathwater in his political philosophy. But he understood natural to mean laws in nature established by God, the creator. He didn't understand natural the way modern thought would uh, when like Charles Darwin would come around 150 years later. Locke believed God created this natural order for all people. And as such, they had natural rights. And that those natural rights had to be protected by the government, by the king. They were not granted by the government or the king or anyone else. They were protected. Um, here we just had 4th of July uh, a couple weeks ago. So maybe this is starting to sound familiar. Locke's most famous writing was called Two Treatises on Government. And he first published it in 1689 when he was around 57. Uh, he did this anonymously because the political situation in England was still kind of dicey and, you know, he needed to work. <laughs> uh, but listen to this. He wrote, he, this is from the second treatise. To properly understand political power and trace its origins, we must consider the state that all people are in naturally. That is a state of perfect freedom of acting and disposing of their own possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the law of nature. Now, he wrote that. And I mean, but that sounds pretty close to how we roll in modern America, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't sound weird or shocking. I mean, it's it's an outlook that we take for granted, really. Uh, we'll talk about more of that in a bit. But what's interesting about this writing of Locke's is the two treatises is the timing. As I mentioned it, he published it anonymously. And uh, the treatises weren't really that well known for many decades. You know, they were, at the time, they were kind of like an obscure blog post that only a handful of nerds read. Uh, but And Locke died in 1704, and only the political people really knew who he was. You know, those were the folks he ran with. But because the two treatises were was printed a few times and stayed generally in people's libraries, eventually political people started invoking it in debate. Uh, the two treatises, which also advocate for removal of a king if he if the king isn't protecting those natural rights, uh, really caught on when things in the American colonies across the Atlantic started heating up in the 1750s and 1760s. According to one historian, a copy of the two treatises was reprinted in Boston in 1773. The New England anti-monarch radical, a guy named Samuel Adams, got a hold of a copy there, surely. No, there's no doubt about it. And Thomas Jefferson, of course, had a big library, and he also read Locke, and he copied some of his statements directly into the Declaration of Independence. So, liberty, liberty, liberal. And this is how we get the liberal part of a liberal democracy. Through the influence of John Locke, we get the idea that government can be created independent of a king or a autocrat or a despot. Locke believed it could be done courtesy of the natural rights and state of human beings. Uh, democracy, in other words. 
But that democracy needs the power separated. And uh, we will we'll talk more about that in a later podcast. Why does any of this matter? Well, the answer in, is in what I just said. If you're going to have a government that is supposed to protect rights, but that has to have its power split apart and spread around, that means people have to get in there and manage the split and the spread. A liberal democracy is only as good as its democracy. Who is the democracy? It is you and me, the people. Now, here I've made a promise to you, and I'm not even to the end of my first podcast, and I've broken it. This is truly a podcast by a politician. Well, I mean, I'm really just a consultant. I'm not a politician. I've never held office. But anyway, a liberal democracy just doesn't do its thing without those it's supposed to protect. And this is an opinion, so I apologize, but not really. We are the guardians of our liberal democracy, period. There is no secret angel of liberty that's going to do it for us. There is no one great leader who will come along one day and just take care of it. Uh, there is absolutely no one holding office today or running for office anywhere that can do it alone. It is up to you and me. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast inauguration. Don't forget to follow and like us. Subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, Twitter is at Trey Bam, T-R-E-Y-B-A-H-M. See you next week when we talk about the original 14 colonies. That's right. I said 14. Until then, keep it free.